Welcome to Man on the Clapham Omnibus Sports Review. I'm going to talk about the, the soul of football. I don't really like the actual term, the, the way how it's used. It's, it's never used in a positive light. It's always used to basically say that football's become soulless and that it's lost its purpose and all the rest of it. And I think the people that criticise and use it, they always use the FA Cup as their kind of main cudgel as a way of, you know, hammering the, the decadence of the modern game. And... I, I always find it interesting. For me, the FA Cup is it's got this wonderful history and it has a, a a role to play in the season and for football and all the rest of it. But I don't think it's actually the role that people think it has. In other words, I, I've always believed the FA Cup in its ability to create storylines, it's actually a really a more accurate way of getting people who aren't you know, the casual fan interested. If you like if you look at some of the big football teams and their old grounds and what the biggest capacity they've ever had, biggest attendance, and it's always an FA Cup game. It's like Spurs' one is uh, seventy five thousand and thirty eight. For this cup game in the, I think at the thirties, against Sunderland, it was like a fourth round replay. And that's just a ridiculously large number for a replay. It was not like a quarter final, it wasn't a semi it was a replay, you know, Spurs were, you know, not doing brilliantly well at the time, and yet, and if you look at some of the other grounds, and their, their biggest attendance is always a cup game, and really what that means to me is, is that the cup was a way of just getting people that pitch up at the ground who weren't there next week. It's a bit like when people always, when they get like a lower league club that does well and starts getting to the first, second, third round, they always say, cup fever spreads across the, the, the town or city or village or wherever it is. And yet, for me, it's always like, okay, so all these people are going to pitch up to the ground on the Saturday, big attendance, big occasion, you know, lots of civic pride, and that's really cool. That's what the FA Cup's good at. And yet, you always think they go, well, yeah, when the TV cameras pack away, presumably these people don't turn up the next week when they're just playing in a regular league game. In other words, for me, it's just a way to get people talking, get people to watch games that they just normally wouldn't. So, in other words... Back in the day, you would tend people. Some people just wouldn't want to turn up to twenty-three league games, but they might turn up for a cup game because oh yeah, the magic of the cup and all the rest of it, and that's good. That's good for football to get people interested and to allow people to watch it on terrestrial. That's cool, but it doesn't make the FA Cup brilliant football. It creates storylines, but they're slightly jimmied storylines. You know, the best teams don't get to FA Cup finals often. Sometimes the finals are terrible. It, and that's fine, but it's not the best football, is it? It's like, okay, if you take, you know, let's say take one of the better cup finals of the, you know, the 90s or the 2000s, okay, you say maybe the West Ham-Liverpool one where Gerrard on one leg smashes that ball into the bottom corner. Brilliant. Fantastic. Would you, though, say that that is a better game than, let's say, take one of the better league games we've had of you know, in the past 30 years. Well, you start and end with the Arsenal-Liverpool game, you know, where Michael Thomas wins the title for Arsenal. You wouldn't swap that for a million cup finals, as good as the Liverpool-West Ham one. Because in the end, Liverpool were a good side, they won the Champions League, they never quite managed to put it together to win the league. And West Ham were, you know, a mid-table outfit. Sometimes they pushed a little bit higher, they got to fifth under Harry, Harry Redknapp. But then they got relegated a couple of times and, you know, they, they've kind of found them this as a floating team that, you know, for the most part stays mid-table. Threatened, you know, when it, things go well, they can push up. 
But when things go wrong, they can, and often have been in the last you know, 25 years, relegated. And it was a good final, but in the end, it didn't go anywhere. In the end, yes, Liverpool had won Istanbul, but they didn't win Istanbul because they'd beaten West Ham in Cardiff. And it, it, and in the end, for West Ham, they didn't kick on from that. That team didn't go anywhere in a few years down the line. They got relegated. And yet, with the Manchester, with the Arsenal-Liverpool, Michael Thomas game, that was epochal. Liverpool never quite recovered from losing, you know, 2-0. Having known that even if they'd lost 1-0, they would have won the title. And Arsenal, you know, maybe you'd say it was the height of the George Graham, but that was interesting. And it, and in the same way that if you take, like, the 90s, when it seemed to... It was a sort of ever-shifting geopoly of which team was going to try and take on Ferguson. So you had some kind of great games. There's a few times where Arsenal would have to go up to Old Trafford and nick a victory to try and, you know, crack on with the title. And you had a few Man United Newcastle games that just had everything because it was just totemic. In other words, if you won this, there's a possibility that you would, you know, destroy Ferguson or destroy Keegan. And it would then just go from that. And this is the thing. It's like, well, if you're, if you're going to talk about the FA Cup, well, what would you swap? You know, would you swap, let's say, five cup finals as awesome as like the West Ham Liverpool one, for one of that? You know, the the just the the tension of some of those games I talked about. You know, the Arsenal Liverpool, Newcastle Man United, Arsenal Man United. I I don't think so. I I think the football played it in those sort of title games was better. It had more to it. It had better quality of players and it was more of a challenge because it was, you know, you didn't just have to beat Man United, you had to beat Man United over 38 games. But then if you then look at some of the other cup finals, then you get, say, the uh, Man United Millwall Cup. That was a, just a atrocious final. I mean, they just, it was unfortunate. I mean, you know, luck of the draw, you know, Millwall done well, they got to the final. And it just, they just weren't able to compete in any given thing. They didn't have a shot on target. And by the end of it, the game just turned into a, into a bit of a farce. You had, they'd say, they brought on some kid. I don't think, I, I think he made like what, three or four appearances as sub for Millwall. And this first one was the cup final. And that was it. And then when Man United changed goalkeepers in the 89th minute. And it just... And so I, I, this is the thing, and also it then sort of bleeds into the television argument because we've had the BT Sport spending a huge amount of money to get the Champions League rights over the last few days. And there's always this sort of flip side of it going like, well, do you remember when the FA Cup final used to be like the, the height of the English football season? But that, that was, that's not... I don't think that necessarily was a good thing. That just meant that you, you'd only had, you know five or six games televised for the whole season. So if you loved football, you would watch the FA Cup final and that most other people, even if they weren't huge football fans, would watch it because, you know, there was like three channels. You didn't have much of a choice. And actually live football in its sense of being... You know, what else were you going to basically watch at three o'clock on a Saturday afternoon in May in 1976? I can't imagine what else was on. Was that, you know, truly interesting? So you know, I don't think people want to move back. I don't think people want less televised football. You may... The criticism that you have, and it's not perfect, is that, yep, yeah, games get moved. Yeah. 
you know, the money is complicated and it, you know, it makes having a football pyramid difficult because you have these teams with huge money. But then, well, if, if, we're gonna, if you're going to say that football's become soulless, well, then we, you have to really show you're working. People say, oh, well, they've, they've become disassociated with you know, normal, everyday life. And, yeah, if you have that sort of money, it's going to, you're going to live somewhere different. It's not going to be like the good old days where the idea was the player would live nearby you and all the rest of it. But, well, that's not the worst, you know, that, that's just modern society. That's what has happened. But in the sense that, well, if you look at it, if you look at how much that football, you know, all these premiership teams have their foundations, that, that do a lot of charity work, and my question is, is that really should football teams have foundations? Well, why, why is a commercial outfit whose job, and you know, because they're all... Why is there such a societal pressure on football clubs to have this huge social, you know, and charity arms to them, when in reality, you know, as big as football clubs are in comparison with where they were 40 or 50 years ago, they are still, even the biggest football club, is nowhere near as big as your high street bank. And yet they seem to have to do almost as much, you know, civil society bits and pieces as a high street bank, yet... In a, in a much more competitive field where, you know, essentially, you know, you're competing in, you know, for players, resource, fans and league position where basically the bottom three teams get relegated and lose huge amounts of money. Whereby, if you compare it to your average high street bank, well, the bottom three don't get relegated as such. <laughs> Obviously, well, they did sort of in 2008, but that's a long time ago. And this is what makes me laugh, is that if you're going to say, oh, it's soulless, but then you think, well, actually, you have a situation where the teams that get relegated get parachute payments. You know, the, the, the Premier League has to send money down the, down the football pyramid. You could say they could give more. And obviously, the, the Premier League then has to give some of their money then to the FA and to invest in grassroots sports. And even some of these team owners, like, no, I'm not in any way, shape or form, the biggest fan of the, you know, Man City owners. I don't like the amount of money they put into Man City. However, you can't deny that they've gone into East Manchester, which, you know, was a deprived area, and they've spent a huge amount of money on, you know, the facilities, the training ground and all the rest of it, which have generally improved the area. And yet, you know, other sports don't get anywhere near the same level of criticism in other words the one thing that football teams have to deal with that rugby teams don't is that you know rugby if you look at where the rugby teams are based you know Twickenham for Harlequins you've got Barnet for Saracens you they're they're not run down areas in the same way that if you're Tottenham West Ham Millwall who actually do have you know far more challenging areas, and therefore the problem is is that that like if you think about Tottenham, they're spending you know like eight hundred million pounds on a brand new stadium, in an area where four or five years ago there were huge riots, anti-government you know just anger burning you know the the centre of it down, and yet they're still investing in the area, 
And in the same way that if you then look at Millwall, who've just fought off a, you know, a rapace, a rapacious offshore company that with tenuous sort of links with the council, they're trying to basically essentially push them out. And yet they've, you know, considering that all the work they've done in the community and all the rest of it, and they've managed to fight them off and they've managed to save people's houses. And so if it, if football was really that bad and that soulless and all the rest of it, then, well, how have they then managed to fight off this thing? Isn't that an example of the football club? You know, the thing is, is that Millwall's actual bottom line is that the first team is getting Millwall Football Club as high up the pyramid as possible. That is the, the raison d'etre of a football club. And if you're going to run it as a professional outfit, which, you know, football is just that sport it's been like for basically the last 120 years, well, you know, the fact that they've done all of the this extra community work, which they don't, they're not legally obliged to do, surely that's, that's fantastic. Surely that's a sign of, you know, the sort of role that football can play. And that the soul, even with this money, even with the differences in society, that, that's a good thing, isn't, you know, AFC Wimbledon, isn't that like the, the classic example? You know, the, the FA make this decision to uproot, you know, allow this team to uproot from its traditional home, where it's a fantastic story, where they've gone up through the non-leagues, they've gone all the way to the top division, they've won the 1988 FA Cup final, they've stayed in the Premier League for the best part of 10 years, and then moved them to Milton Keynes, where, you know, just because that you know, there was a stadium there. And yet, instead of just saying, well, okay, fair enough, and just accepting it, they then form their own football team, get that football team up the football league to the point where they're playing MK Dons. Isn't that, you know, a sign of, you know, civil society or whatever David Cameron wanted when he talked about, you know, people digging in and creating their own communities? They built a football team out of nothing. And then you look at something like the Hillsborough tragedy where, you know, the government and the police and, you know, just wider hierarchy in society just wanted it to go away and just shut them out for years and years and these people had to fight a horrendous emotional battle just to get the truth and it, even now it's still not quite over but isn't that a sign that it still has a soul that you've still got these communities fighting and winning against you know at times almost overwhelming odds you know, even almost against yourself. I mean, this is... You know, the point that I always say is that the FA made a terrible, I mean, an absolutely atrocious emotional decision when, when they basically allowed Wimbledon to become the NK Dons. It was awful, and it was never going to look good in history. And it will always be a slight stain on the, the organisation. But... Yes, um, on the emotional level, it was wrong, and even just in terms of just pure justice. But the actual end point, which is, I think, what they've, what the decision actually entailed was, is that they just took it as a literal decision. They saw Wimbledon, as a football club, didn't have a ground, was careening down the league, their attendances were slow, and there just didn't seem to be any way around it. The ownership had just basically thrown up their hands and said, we can't come up with a solution. You know, Merton Council was intransigent. There just didn't seem to be a way of essentially it turning into a happy ending. 
So in the end, the owner decides that you know, he's going to use a commercial acumen. Because in the end, he's bought Wimbledon as an investment. He sees Wimbledon as being a club that has you know, won the FA Cup, that's been in the Premier League and wants to get them up the table, which is, you know, again, like I said, the raison d'etre of why you have a professional football team. And so he sees that the options he had was basically keep playing at Selhurst Park or try and move them around, but there wasn't, you know, there didn't seem to be a solution. If Sam Haman couldn't find the solution, if they couldn't find the solution when they were riding, you know, high in the Premier League, I don't see how they were going to make that sort of call when they were in struggling in League One with, you know, no attendance. So he's made the best commercial decision. Doesn't make him a great person, you know, but I can see where he was going. And then you have to then see where the FA were going. So in other words, they had Wimbledon, who were in this just horrible mess that didn't seem to have a solution, and that the FA, for the want of a better word, didn't really have any of the tools. They couldn't force Merton Council to do anything. They don't have the money to put Wimbledon somewhere, you know. And yet they see Milton Keynes, this area where... You know, there's enough room for a stadium, there's enough... Well, you have the potential to get a, t- a Premier League club. In other words, there's no reason why MK Dons can't one day be a Premier League club. You know, they get the right manager, the youth team keeps producing players like Deli Alley, the catchment area, the fact that the infrastructure's there. But, flip it round to the other side then. So, in other words, if the FA had decided, OK, Wimbledon have to stay in Wimbledon and... Or find a way and tough it out within London. Would that have been successful? I don't know. I, especially with that owner. In, I don't see how that would have... I think they would have probably gone down and down and down. And possibly even to the point of you know, overwhelming debts and just sort of near extinction. I don't see that ending well. But then, okay, if you then start to do what AFC Wimbledon eventually did in terms of building a club from nothing. If you were to start doing that in Milton Keynes... I don't think they would have gone anywhere. So in other words, for Milton Keynes to work as a you know, professional football team, they almost needed to be ready-made. They needed to have a league position, they needed to have the stadium, and that's what's happened. And they've you know, had some su- relative amount of success. They've gone to the championship. And it's what, in the end, the, the actual destruction of Wimbledon was the best thing that actually ever happened to it. I don't believe any AFC Wimbledon fan listening will, <laughs> would feel that way. You'd be angry and bitter. You still didn't want your football team to leave and no football fan should ever have their football team jimmied away from them just because a businessman, you know, sees the bottom line. However, the fact is, by starting their own club, they were able to build this a community club. They were able to get, you know, stay, play in, in Kingston. They were able to then build up, get through the leagues and build the, the, the club, the, the community around it. And now, you know, they're in a situation where they're about to move back to Merton, which is just the dream. So in the end, yes, the results have ended up well for MK Dons and AFC Wimbledon. But obviously you wouldn't, the FA should never do that again. Because in the end, no matter how much logic I can put into it, on paper, gymming a football club from one place to another on, you know, essentially commercial grounds, is just not a good look for, for the English football. Which then, I think in its own sense, then leads on to the next one. It's a bit like, so you've got teams like FC United and Manchester and, and Dulwich Hamlet. And they're, they're two interesting sort of case studies. For me personally, 
I'm always a little bit torn when I think of FC United of Manchester. In many ways, it, it's it's a great story. In other words, they they get angry at the ownership in Glazer and the way how he's running the club and the debt and just the way how it looked. In other words, I think the commercialization of, of Manchester United has always been part of the the sort of the football club. In other words, you start off with Newton Heath, and that doesn't sound like a big football team. So that you know, they then change the colour scheme. So it goes to red. They then become Manchester United. The idea is, it you, you, everyone's a part of you, Manchester, and then some. You know, it's a way of getting fans, which is you know, a way how a lot of our best football teams, you know, like Liverpool, Chelsea, there was always an element of commercialness. In other words, there was some guy with a stadium that didn't have a football team, creates a team, and gives it a name that you know has some rel, you know, some. Relevance, in other words, Liverpool as opposed to Everton, in other words, again, covering a, a huge catchment area, and obviously Chelsea and all the rest. Yeah, you can see the, the principles and points behind it. So, so Manchester, and the thing is, is that they have this long period of the time, the 70s and 80s to the start of the 90s, where they have to watch Liverpool have this just phenomenal run of success. They, they get, they've had a relegation, and you know, they've had some relative bits of success, but they're sort of a sleeping giant. And then kind of, you know, you have Ferguson then starts to turn it around, the stadium gets really big, and they, they have this huge commercial kind of arm in, in, as a team in the 90s. Obviously now, every football team has the same kind of commercial level, but, for, you know, United were the first, because they were the second team that became a PLC after Spurs, but they were the ones that really ran with it in a way that, you know, Tottenham, because of their relative size couldn't do so I can see where a Man United fan would be torn because you suddenly had all of this money the stadium got bigger you had all this success with Ferguson and then almost by the time you get to the sort of Glazer takeover it's almost in a way a, a little bit I don't want to say too late but it's almost as if they find it's that sort of dawning realization that actually ah I don't like the way how my football club is turning out and so then they sort of break away because once they realise they can't really get rid of Glazer, they create their own club. And it's in a, in a way, it's I think one of the interesting stories when, it, when you actually read about it is that they originally registered with the FA as FC United and the FA actually turned them down saying, well, that's just too generic. And that's why it's, it's interesting because AFC Wimbledon is a lot more straightforward. You just know that they wanted a team in Wimbledon because their one had been stolen away. Whereby FC United of Manchester, as they eventually called it, well, they're, they're a bit more interesting. In other words, it's like, well, we want to protest against Glazer, we want to start our own team, like AMC Wimbledon, but we also want it to have lots of the elements of, well, Manchester United, so we want red shirts, we want United in the title, and all the rest of it, and so on and so forth. And it, uh, I think if you, if you wanted to make it as a... Full, I think, if you wanted to make it a full criticism, if you wanted to make it a protest club, if you wanted to, I suppose, embarrass the Glazers, that I think the way how I, how, which would have worked, I think, in a way that it hasn't, the way how the club's present, presently constituted, well, well, why didn't they, why, why couldn't they have been a women's team? If you wanted to create a successful version of Manchester United in as quick as humanly possible, a women's side would have done, a professional women's side would have done 
it's so much quicker. In other words, at the time there would have been only two or three professional divisions, of which the, the bottom two aren't fully professional. So, in other words, the amount of startup capital you would need wouldn't be particularly high. The chances of going through the leagues are a lot easier, and the players are a lot more available, and all the rest of it. So, and then the, the sort of carrot at the end of the stick would have been well, you would have then been have you been FC United of Manchester, and you would have been playing. Liverpool, you'd have been playing Man City. Okay, the women's teams, but you're still playing against Man City. You then know that if you get into the Premier League, you can then get into the Champions League, and then you can win the Champions League. Because the one that the incongruous and interesting thing is, Manchester United don't have a women's team. Now, there's two arguments to it. You could sit there and say, well, the first one and the obvious one is, that's completely awful. How can you have a you know, 2 billion, 3 billion, 4 billion football club and not at some point have a women's team. And the, the, the flips, the other argument, I suppose, the dev, if you're playing devil's advocate, would be, well, why, why do they have to? In other words, this is what comes back to what I said earlier. Well, why should a professional football team have to then have a women's team just because everyone else does? You know, I can see the point, but in the end, I still think it's just intrinsically wrong. And for a club of that size not to have, to support women's football is just, it's embarrassing for my personal opinion. And I think had FC United gone down that route and then started winning leagues and playing Liverpool, Manchester United, Arsenal, and then playing in Europe and having success. And if they were in the champion, Women's Champions League and Manchester United weren't, and that would have, I think it would have had slightly more, I think it would have had more oomph. It would have done... I think it would have worked more as a, as a protest, whereby I think the problem was is that suddenly United, a few years after FC United got set up, started winning again, and in the end, I think some elements of the protest kind of fizzled out because in the end, the Glazers are still put, yeah, Man United are still spending huge amounts of money in the transfer window, you know, they they still got that commitment to win that they had under Ferguson. The only difference is they just don't have Ferguson. So, in a way, their element of protest isn't, you know, in my in my mind, isn't quite as strong as AFC Wimbledon. In other words, AFC Wimbledon, it was wrong. They took their team, and the FA allowed them to move to Milton Keynes. There was no logical way that you could actually support. You know, it'd be virtually impossible to be a season ticket holder if you lived in Wimbledon and having to go to Milton Keynes every single Saturday. That's just not logical and. You know, whereby with the FC United and Manchester United, well, really, you're just angry necessarily at the way how Glazers run in the club. But that seems to be much more of a business decision. In other words, you're just not happy with the fact that, you know, he, you know, Malcolm Glazer, before he died, didn't go to games, that he loaded the club with a huge amount of debt. But at the same time, in that's more that's more of a shareholder problem than it is a sort of, fan on the street problem it, because really you're just uh, you, you're saying that the debt is wrong well that's an opinion a shareholder would have not necessarily a fan on the street because if you're going to sit there and go well okay the club became very commercial it's like well the club by about 1995 were the, the front end of it they were the first teams to really have four or five kits they were the first you know outfit to really build their stadium up and to have you know um MU, MU TV, the, the Red Cafe that 
you know, they were the forefront of it because they were successful. And, well, that's the, the inevitability of success. You will have to then, you will have a, a global thing. Which then, and this is the thing that I, I guess is that, in some ways that I find a little bit sad, is that to a certain extent with FC United and Manchester, in other words, these the, the fans in some respects would, would rather, in effect, start in like the ninth or 10th division and watch 10th division football and okay they've gone up and up and up but at the same time they rather they'd rather watch 10th division football than premier league women's football and, uh, and i can understand from uh, a fc united fans fc united fans perspective that he you know started supporting man united and that's a men's team and then you know if he wanted to form a breakaway they would be immense. I can I can understand. It just if you were going to go down the protest route, it just uh, seems to self. It seemed to cut one of the main ways that you could have protested against what Manchester United has become under the Glazers. But you know, they're, 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 I don't. Yeah, there's a po- It can go both ways, but and I think one of the things I always find about sort of the with especially with FC United is that. In the end, they just created their own, in effect, mini non-league Manchester United. In other words, they've gone and had all of these promotions. As far as I'm aware, they've never been relegated. You know, they kept the same manager for you know at least the first sort of eight or nine years. And then it's like, well, in effect, really, because of their, you know, the amount of fans they've had, they've been able to build their own ground and the international kind of coverage that they've got. Well, it's like, well, you've just in effect. Yeah, you know, it, it it's not a fair fight, is it? It's only now when they've, I think, got up to the conference north that the first time they've kind of struggled. But even in the longer term, if you say the next five, ten years, yeah, of course they're going to, you know, eventually, I presume, get into the conference. Then you know they become a league club, and but in that respect, it's. Yeah, it is. You've just created a, just a mini Manchester United where, you know, it has a lot of the features of the good old days. In other words, you have terracing, you know, it, you can get a ticket on the day and all the rest of it. But it, in effect, some parts of it aren't fully real. In other words, that the SC United haven't really ever had a period of a bad success. It's almost like just a mini Ferguson. So you have the same manager. <laughs> You always you win more often than you don't. You you're the biggest team in whichever league it, that you're in, and that to me almost feels a little bit. Just doesn't feel quite as, as real than if he was. Let's say if those fans had decided instead of just going to support Berry or any number of other small sort of clubs that would have loved two or three thousand fans through the door, and it was still non-league. It's still real. But at the same time, there's no guarantee of success that's attendant to it. In other words, we're all happy that AFC Wimbledon are now playing MK Dons because on a justice sense, that's right. <laughs> because, you know, their rightful place in the league was taken by this startup franchise. Now, even if it's worked out well for both of them, that's still... I can understand why the neutral would have that desire for Wimbledon to do well especially if it was at the extent of... Because in the end, that whole issue, because it was so wrong... And I think the good news is I don't think the FA would ever do let it happen again. But you can still... 
you can understand that. Whereby I think the FC United one isn't quite as as clear cut. I think a few of the articles that I've read about it seems just, and there's this whole thing. Oh yeah, and a load of the FC United fans still watch Man U on the telly. It's like, ah, if it's kind of a protest club, then still supporting Man United, and that's why it's. I thought I find it hard because I can imagine these people are huge United fans, but felt left out and then created their own club. But it's still. It's almost like their little, it's almost like a little kid brother, isn't it? Man United. And then, so you know, you can go with the FC Wimbledon story, the FC United one. I think the next one in, that I find interesting when we, if you're talking about the soul of football, it is uh, Dulwich Hamlet. There, I think in the eighth tier, I want to say seventh or eighth tier of English football, and they've over the last few years managed to get a fan base that basically. It seems to be sort of aping the Italian kind of um, Tifosi culture and having fan clubs, and so they have lots of artwork, and they've then, you know, sort of rapidly kind of expanded out, and they, they do a lot of um, social kind of work, and it's it's a really interesting story, because they've got a very cosmopolitan fan base, and it's very inclusive and all the rest of it, and it's I, I find it fascinating, because for years I, I went to watch Barnet there with my local football club even though obviously it's a better season ticket holder but you know for years before I had the season ticket I would go to Barnet and, and I loved it and it, it was a huge part of you know my childhood and yet I find that the fans of, of Dulwich Hamlet and what they're doing I, it, it leaves me a little bit cold because to me going to a non-league game you get what you pay for you turn up you don't have to let's say have a ticket you pay your money you get you get close to the players and it's a bit more raw and a little bit more real but at the same time that you know the standard isn't as high you know some some years it, it can be a struggle and all the rest of it and you know it's sometimes it can be difficult really to form a bond to the players a lot of the time they're only on one two year contract they don't stick around but at the same time it's still a wonderful you know, it's more positives than negatives. But then, for me, with these Dulwich Hamlet fans and the way how it becomes quite politicised, in other words, they're saying, oh, yeah, well, we're very much... we They've done um, events about sort of uh, pro-immigration. Um, they've done sort of uh, canned food drives. And I don't want to be critical of that. I, I think that's fantastic. And, you know, the more people act like that, as far as I'm concerned, the better. That's, you know common sense to a degree but it what i what i find troubling is that there's this emphasis that actually they can't just turn up and watch the football in the same way that that's what i would do at barney in other words i would turn up to barney on a saturday after a week at work a week at school put my money down and i'd want barnet to win because i'd want us to go up the league you know get to the playoff final or get to the third round of the fa cup win because you know that's for me that's basically the reason detra of any kind of you know league sport you turn up you want to win and yet with someone like Dulwich Hamlet where they've had more fans and they've got a, a lot larger you know they have a global footprint now because of all of this activism and yet the football club hasn't gone anywhere it's not gone promoted it hasn't it's just sort of stayed exactly where it is. And that's my concern, is that in the end, the fans, for all of their positivity and all the rest of it, 
football isn't the main point. In other words, they're not just turning up at 2.55, watching the game and going home. It becomes the community almost sub, you know, swallowing the football club and the football is actually just a, a side event rather than the main event, which... And it's not, in effect, it's not about winning. It's about, ah, oh, but we have all of this positivity. And, and while it's good, it, 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 turns, it turns the non-league almost into a little bit of a fetish. It's a way of making a statement. Oh, I don't go and spend all my money at Arsenal or Tottenham or West Ham or Chelsea. I go to Dulwich Hamlet because they, they stand for the, all the right things. And it's just like, well, that, that's turning non-league into you know, a, a political weapon. Just as the same way I was talking about, you know, people using the FA Cup to hammer, you know, profession, you know, the modern game as being this soulless enterprise. And, yeah, it's like, well, what happens if you have a right-wing version of Dulwich Hamlet? What happens if, you know, some ridiculously wealthy person goes into a slightly run-down area and puts £3 million into the local non-league team and uses that as a way of propagating whatever, you know, more stereotypical right-wing views. Well, what happens then? If you're Dulwich Hamlet, you're not in a position to say, well, I disagree with that. Well, you open the door by saying, well, actually, this football club has to mean more than just Dulwich Hamlet playing in the seventh division. It has to be Dulwich Hamlet as an, an, a community event where everyone is welcome and it's all... A, you know. And the thing is, in the end... No, no matter how much good it has done in that local area and all the rest of it, it's still a classical example of certain elements of uh, English politics. It's, well, Dulwich Hamlet has a lot of nice housing. Okay, it does have some rough areas, but, you know, it's in London and it has, you know, it's quite a cosmopolitan area, whereby I can imagine it being a lot harder to do all of that community activism if you went to a, let's say, a particularly run-down part of the northwest, where you don't have people that can organise things, you don't have a craft brewery that will happily, you know, put their beer up in thing, and where you don't really have the money to run that kind of activism and supporters, coaches, and all the rest of it. And the, in the end, for me, like they were talking about how the atmosphere is great because it's they they you know there's lots of singing and dancing and all these basically tifos, and it's like well. In other words, can you just watch Dulwich Hamlet and nothing else? Which is what, you know, the average football fan uses it for. In other words, you know, when, when I go to watch Spurs with all the people I've sat with for the last 13 years, we don't talk about politics. It's a way of people just bringing together, talking and having fun and watching the game. But that's it. In other words, if you want to give to charity and if you want to do that, then that's something you can do. But it doesn't have to be anything to do with, with Spurs. It's a bit like um, my... Before all of this Millwall stuff came out, I always thought when I thought Dulwich Hamlet, well, what would happen if, let's say, a bunch of Millwall fans decided that you know, they were going to basically detach from Millwall, start their own football team, and then start you know, smashing up <laughs> the Southern League? And it's that thing. Once you start opening the door, then, then you'll create situations where you'll have... And this happens in Italy sometimes, with like Laverno and Lazio. Laverno are considered like a have a very strong communist left-wing side to it. And Lazio are, are, relatively speaking, more traditionally right-wing. And so some of the games they've had have just turned into, like, bloodbaths. And it's like, well, why would we want that within our sport? Why would we want certain football teams considered to be linked with politics? I just don't see how that, how that would work. It's a bit... 
you know, I, I think the non I think non league was has this wonderful, interesting history and it's had peaks and troughs, but you know, as the FA Cup has shown, you've still got teams like Lincoln and Sutton and all the rest of it. They've all done, you know, kind of brilliantly well this season in the Cup. And, you know, you've had teams like Bradford. And you've also had a lot more talent and better football and better quality stadiums than you did, you know, 25 years ago. And it, so it's strong. It, it's resilient. It got over the ITV digital fiasco. And yet now there does seem to have this dangerous thing of people just basically trying to come in from different angles so Dulwich Hamlet trying to turn it into this kind of very community thing you've got FC United using the non-league as a weapon against Glazer and then you've got people like um, the Manchester United players um, Peter Lynn who owns Valencia and they've taken over Salford and they're trying to push Salford up the league and I just find it a bit it's a bit like playing God so in other words all these ex-Manchester United pros have who have ridiculously large amounts of money in comparison with any other owner at that level, and Peter Lynn, who has you know, enough money to essentially have tried to buy Liverpool, who owns Valencia, and they've come in and they've just thrown money at it, and so now Salford are going up the league. But it's... And uh, Paul Scholes uses this. It's always like, oh, I much prefer watching Salford now than I ever did you know, watching Man United at the moment. It's just like, well... It, in the end, if, if everyone starts picking a team and then gymming them up the league, then you're just really destroying what, what the actual point of the non-league is. It's just a, a more meritocratic way around it, where the best teams will go up the leagues. So in other words, Lincoln are in you know the conference because their club was run badly over the last few years when they were in League One. They got debts, a few terrible owners, and they've come down. But it's not it's not real then if however a bunch of billionaires at Manchester United ex-Man United players pick up a random team and just push them up the league it, that doesn't feel right to me that's not in other words you're just tilting the system and using the fact that non-league can get at times quite a lot of publicity let's say like when Southall went on a cup run a few a couple of years ago it just doesn't to me feel right football does have all of these wonderful things you know, there's a lot more charity work than, you know, or more obvious charity work than other sort of traditional English sports and all the rest of it. And yet, there's always this risk that something like the non-league could end up being essentially corrupted by people whose intentions aren't pure. It's not always about the football. In other words, Peter Lim isn't, you know, is using... I, I don't quite understand why he bought it. That's my question mark. In other words, if you want to... If you buy Valencia... I understand what you're trying to achieve. You know, you're trying to get them up into, you know, winning the, the odd Spanish league. You're trying to get them, you know, into the Champions League where they've had success. Well, what's, what's the end point of Salford? In other words, what is it making them a League One team, a League Two team? You know, the, the Sutton one is a great example. If you, if you look at Sutton, it's like, well, in 1988, they beat, or 89 maybe, they beat Coventry, who were the FA Cup holders, and that was a huge deal, and it was a big shock, and it, it was interesting, and it's, you know, it stayed as one of the main cup shocks that get kind of mentioned every year, and now, you know, they beat Leeds and all the rest of it, but isn't the thing that no one seemed to actually make out was that, actually, they were in virtually the same position in the same league as they were, you know, virtually my whole life. In other words, for 25 years, they, they hadn't gone up. They hadn't gone into the Football League. They'd gone down a couple of times. 
and but now they're a lower mid-table conference team. And it's like, well, that's why they're minnows. It's because there isn't essentially enough, you know, in investment. There's not enough fans. It just the the infrastructure isn't there for, for Sutton United to meaningfully kick on and get into the football league. Which is, you know, that's why that they're in effect on the periphery of, of football and when they have these great cup runs. In other words, in, in, in some respects you could probably argue that they have a higher a higher standing in football than actually what the club's actually achieved. In other words, these two cup runs have managed to actually give Sutton United probably more credit than clubs that have actually gone into the football league who've who've done better, which is interesting in its own way, but and that's when it comes down to someone like Peter Lim. It's like, well, there's a reason why Salford have never got into, let's say, the conference or the football league. It's because there just wasn't the emphasis there. But now, suddenly, because you know these, you know, this consortium of people with this power have now sort of played God, and it, it does concern me. And I don't think it's fair on all the other non-league fans who just turn up every single week who want their team to do well and can make their own decisions to. You know, watch it because it's local or it's cheap or whatever, or it's just your local team. But now it seems that there's a load of teams where that's not enough. There has to be some bigger, you know, there has to be some kind of project to it or some meaning to it, which I, I just don't, I don't like. And in the end, if we're all going to sit there and say about all the positives that the non-league provide, yeah, there are some downside in the same way that you don't necessarily really get that in the, the Premier League. Where for, you know, one of the things that always makes me, when people, especially media people, criticise Premier League footballers, I was like, oh, well, yeah, they live in their own world, they've got all these tattoos and the lifestyle and the rest of it. And yet, if you look at any, any official website of any Premier League club and any programme, the amount of charity events these footballers have to do, and where they have to go and all the other things, I mean, a lot of it's contractual, a lot of it's mandated, but they still have to do it. In other words... The average Premier League football player has spent more time in children's hospital and doing charity work than the average fan or the average media pundit who is sort of hammering them for it. In other words, they have to have this constant, you know, desire. And this is for a lot of it's from a media standpoint and a marketing and PR, and I, and I get that. But they still have to do a lot more charity work than the average banker does or the average person that, you know, works for you know, a sort of major high street firm. And people seem to forget that. And they seem to forget that a lot of these players are, you know, they come from less well-off backgrounds. It's like if you, the, the, always, the one that always makes me laugh is when people start, you know, talking about, you know, oh, isn't, isn't it lovely the way how the rugby people talk to the, the ref and everything else? And that, that, that's good. I'm, I'm not, not having a go at it. But then the same thing is, is that rugby has a different... You know, they get a lot of their players and, you know, from public schools and from the sort of wealthier secondary schools. And it's got a lot more, in other words, they just, it's a lot easier in certain respects for rugby to engender this kind of, and it's also not as fully professional as sport. And yet sport, ha well, and football, where they have to, you know, where it's, there's a lot more social mobility. In other words, football clubs have to, you know, they just get the talent from where it is. Sometimes that'll be inner cities. Sometimes that'll be, you know, broken backgrounds. That Sometimes it's from, you know, different countries and all the rest of it. But, and yeah, it never gets celebrated. It never, 
someone like Raheem Sterling who comes uh, across to uh, you know disadvantaged part of London in Wembley when he's five and, and watches the Wembley Stadium being built and dreams of playing there and then he does and it's brilliant and he gets a tattoo of a little kid looking up at Wembley with a ball under his arm it's like that's wonderful that's beautiful and you've made you've you've made it and you've had this and you pushed yourself when you could have easily fallen by the wayside and yet people in the end seem oh well he's he was this terrible person because he'd left Liverpool for Man City and it's like well no he he followed his career and he's had success and he's made it and isn't that a good thing isn't that a good thing that you know and yeah, the where you have like Leicester winning the league, and it just it feels that there's a lot more fairness in football, even if the money and even if the, the commercialization, which is really just the same thing as everyday life. I think if you ever want to understand, it's like when people say, "Oh well, the the managers keep on getting sacked really easily." It's like, well, actually, if you compare, you know, in the nineteen seventies, the standard. Uh, duration for chief executives, chief financial officers, it was about you know ten to twelve years, and now it's eighteen months. And if you then look at football managers in the seventies, yeah, they were averaging four, five, six, seven years, and now they're averaging two, eighteen months to three years. And it's like, well, that's just the modern world seeping in to football. In other words, you know, back in the seventies, the cup final was huge. You know, the league, you know, because. You, you only really had the, the the league champions went into the European Cup. The only top three, four teams would then go into Europe, and the cup winners would go into the cup winners' cup. So in other words, really outside of you know sixth or seventh place, and all the way down to twenty fourth. So really, you had would have ten, twelve, thirteen teams that just were in stasis. In other words, a cup run for them was fantastic. Because there was nowhere else to go. In other words, if you weren't being relegated and if you weren't in the league or the top four or five or that sort of top six, then there wasn't the same pressure that you have now whereby the difference between finishing 13th and 10th could be eight or nine million pounds. So as a result, the pressure has grown on, you know, and this is what globalisation has done to CEOs and all the rest of it. In other words, in the 70s, there wasn't there was elements of stability that meant that you were able to develop things slowly. Now, you don't have that. Companies have to make profits and all the rest of it. Now, the rights and wrongs of it, that's a, this is a football podcast, not you know, Politics 101, but that's, that's how the modern world, which is where something which is a bit like with rugby, which doesn't quite have that same level. In other words, they can be a bit more selective with you know the players. and In other words, the clubs don't have to do the same sort of community outreach because they're just not based in areas that have huge deprivation and social problems. So in other words, it's a lot easier for them and there's no, there's not the same level of scrutiny and all the rest of it. In other words, the, I think the classic one is we've just, I spent, and most football fans have this view that the MK Dons and, you know, Milton and AFC was just a terrible thing. It's travesty. And yet rugby has had Wasp moved from Sunbury, South West London, well, yeah, West London, South West London, to Coventry, built, you know, jimmied, you know, Coventry City Stadium, and it's not really provided the same level of anger. It, people have just said, well, you know, it's, you know, helped, you know, Wasp now one of the biggest rugby teams 
in the country and to an extent in Europe and they're now probably better placed to you know start fighting in you know the European Cup against the free spending French teams but it is I think this is what I find with, with football and rugby and the, the the view of the soul of football is is that people will make this will see what they want to see they want in certain respects people want to see that the the FA Cup was this pure and wonderful thing and that now because of all the money it's not the same it doesn't have the same viewpoint same impact and that's really just looking back at a, a time that just was the world was a lot smaller and all the rest of it and yet at the same time people then on the flip side of it look at rugby and think oh well they don't have the same prima donna-ish attitude as Premier League players and all the rest of it and yet at the same time you can have an England captain that spent a year of his career suspended when you imagine Wayne Rooney doing a tenth of the things that you know Dylan Hartley's done and he would have been crucified and it's but the same point is is that people look to I think see rugby in a way that is somewhat nostalgic in other words you know Every single year you have the Autumn Internationals at Twickenham and then you have the Six Nations and it's always the same teams and and it's not as challenging as something whereby in football you've had you know, the, the, the rise of the Champions League, you've had the league is now you know a lot more important, it's a lot more competitive. So in other words, something like the Cup becomes a, a tactical decision. Do you go for the FA Cup? where you might then, your league form might tail off, and then you might get into the relegation zone, which then, and all of the attendant bits and pieces, whereby something like rugby, which were like, well, you have one relegation spot. <laughs> and usually that, you know, the team that goes down is the ones with the, you know, the weakest finances. So in other words, London Welsh have got relegated, and they've literally nearly gone out of business. Worcester and all that. It's... In other words, all of the teams that, you know, your traditional teams, say, you know, Wasps, Harlequins, Saracens, they've all really got almost golden ticket that even when Harlequins went down a few years ago, they just went straight back up. And they were able to actually blood some youngsters, get rid of some of their overpaid players. And it just wasn't the same, whereby you can have a situation where the championship, which is one of the most interesting leagues, one of the most interesting competitive leagues, and yet you can have Nottingham Forest, you won the European Cup twice. You've had Derby, you've got to a, a semi-final. You've got Leeds, who've got to a final. Um, you know, won the, you know, the last football league before the, the Premier League. And you can have Villa, who won. So you can have all of these teams with these brilliant histories and huge fan bases. And you can have Newcastle. And yet, you look at it, that's like five, six, seven, eight teams. And yet only three can go up. In other words, there's... It's, the championship has all of these. It's a dog eat dog world in championship, and that's why I can understand managers not lasting so long. But I see that in certain ways as being a positive. That means that it's like if you look at all the other first divisions from you know France, Spain, Italy, they're just not the same. They're nowhere near as compelling, and there's no, and they're not as competitive. There are flip sides and downsides to it, and you know you can we can come back to that at a later date. But I think what I want to to leave you with is the sense that football still has a role to play. It it can it can allow people to do great things and to fight bigger things. They can fight corporations like Millwall did. They can fight the Glazers. They can fight the FA. They can fight 
you know, the owners, you know, Winkleman at MK Dons. You know, you can have Leicester winning the league against all odds. You can have Lincoln coming up with two ex-school teachers. You, you can have, and it can bring people into it. People have got fascinated about Lincoln and Sutton and all the rest of it. And, and it shows you, like, somewhere like Sutton, who, who haven't got much of a footprint out of these cup runs in their history. And yet they're still this brilliant football club that allow, it has the plastic, you know, the four, fourth generation AstroTurf. So that they can have women's football and they can have youth groups and anyone can use it. And that's brilliant. <laughs> in this, and, it's, and it's that. And it's the fact that you've got this stadium at Spurs that is going to you know, have some impact. It's going to help. It's not going to solve every single issue that Tottenham has. I wouldn't pretend that in a year, in a million years. And yeah, there are complexities. There are good sides and downsides. Is that some people will probably get pushed out because of the housing not being, you know fully you know affordable but they're still there that when they didn't have to they could have easily moved outside of of that area and not have to deal with all the implications of staying in Tottenham you, you could the same thing could have happened to, to Liverpool but they decided to stay at Anfield it, it's there's still that connection there's still reasons why people watch games there's still Positive. There's still ways that the game can grab you, which is what the FA Cup is good at. It creates good storylines, even if they are often the same storylines that you hear every year. Oh, the player that got released, or the milkman who's going to score the winner in the last, <laughs> the winner in the last minute. But there's still a song there. There's still the thing that there's a million different ways you can go about it. But if you just have to turn up at three o'clock or seven forty-five or whatever, and it means something. It's a way of attaching ourselves to a history and to a cultural identity. And, and really, to end this, I'm going to say this. What else are you going to do on a Saturday? <laughs>